Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways, 12 Days of Christmas Guests, where we're talking to a famous face about their personal relationship with the Second World War. And, of course, today, Happy New Year. It's the 1st of January, 2023. Can you believe it? Anyway, on today's episode, Al and I caught up with the brilliant Sebastian Folks about his very personal interest in the Second World War and how it has inspired some of his amazing novels. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, our Christmas editions. And who are we talking to, Jim? Well, he's an old friend of mine and, and uh, one of my absolute favourite novelists and the favourite novelist of many, many, many millions as well. It's Sebastian Folks. He's also sometime um, batting partner of mine. Um, Sebastian and I <laughs> will be forever bonded by um, a, a very special day in Colombo, in Sri Lanka, um, where we almost got to 100 opening run partnership against some pretty tidy bowling, it has to be said, on a test match ground. Um, we didn't quite get the three figures, but we almost did. And it was it was a very memorable day, not least because it was also the day that David Bowie died, um, oh. which is why I kind of sort of remember it. But um, another reason why I remember it. But we're not here to talk about cricket. No. Um, we're obviously here to talk about the Second World War, but also um, Sebastian's books and of your many novels, Sebastian, you've written about the Second World War and a number of them. Charlotte Grey, obviously, Possible Life. And I've got to say, one of my absolute favourites of your yours, uh, Where My Heart Used to Be, which was just a stunning book. Also partly set at Anzio, um, which I'm writing about at the moment, so it's kind of much on my mind. Well, um, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, it's very nice to be here. And, uh, yeah, I... I have written a little bit about the war. I'm not an expert on it. I'm not a historian like you guys. Um, but it's just something that was in the background of my life when I was growing up, I suppose. And my father had been uh, an infantryman with the Duke of Wellington's regiment, as had the fathers of most of the kids I knew growing up, and our mothers as well. My mother was in the WAF. So it was just something that was there. It wasn't extraordinary. But when you're a child, of course, you you know, all you're interested in is what's for tea and can I go and play football now and, and so on. And it wasn't until I was older and I suppose around about the age of 16 and I began to read books and think about life and history and who we were and what's going on that I realized the world we lived in was not quite as lovely and cozy and safe as mum and dad made out. That In fact, we were 
on the edge of a, a third world war. I remember very well the Cuban Missile Crisis and the long faces of the teachers at school. And I think at that point, I decided to sort of try to understand how we'd got ourselves into this position. And of course, like most little curious little boys, I asked dad. And like most fathers, he was very reluctant to talk about it, not because he'd been over-traumatized, but because that was then and they wanted to put all that behind them and have a nice life now and live in peace and grow nice vegetables in the garden and play cricket at weekends and so on. But I suppose it was as a teenager that the sort of curiosity about the sort of bizarre nature of our life and our parents' lives first hit me. But I think also you. the other thing I think about that generation when their children are asking them about it, they, they don't want their children to think of them as soldiers and, and ultimately people who have been trained to kill other people. I mean, this is, is sort of grotesque, isn't it? And you, yeah. you know, I would imagine that most people just don't, you know, your father probably didn't want you to think of him in those terms, I would imagine. I think that's right. I think I remember asking at lunch one day, did you actually kill any Germans, Dad? And- <laughs> what did he do, clip you around the ear? <laughs> and he said, well... No, I, I, he didn't want to talk about it. I said, maybe, I mean, I probably threw a grenade, which who knows, it might have, blah, blah, blah. But I, I do know that after the first sort of serious action he saw in Tunisia, a very, very, you know, unpleasant battle, which took place over a course of about 10 or 12 hours, after which he was awarded an MC, his first sort of big action of the war. Wow. He, Gosh. he, he sort of, he wrote in his own memoir, uh, which is not for publication, but just for the family, that once it was over and it was clear that we had won, he knelt down behind a bush and wept just at the sort wow. of release of the adrenaline. And because, yeah. you know, he, he was a law student, <laughs> he wasn't used to killing people. Yeah, amazing. I, I've, I've forgotten because we have actually, you and I have talked about Tunisia, haven't you? Because you were saying, I remember once you said, are you ever thinking of going to Tunisia again? And I said, well, I don't know, but if I do, I'll let you know. And, and we I were going to go, actually. And then there was that uh, terrorist thing. And we were advised that uh, it, yeah. we can't, we couldn't go. And it's, it's still yes. not very good, is it, Tunisia? It's a great shame. I'd well, love I to go. Know. I went. I went there a couple of years ago. Oh, did fine. you? Yeah, it was, it was really it was really all right. And you can definitely, you know, I mean, your father was almost certainly been in the northern part of Tunisia. He was, yeah. And sort of, you know, Longstop and, and Sidi Nazir and all those sort of places. And He landed at a place called Bone, uh, uh, the French right. name, which is now yeah. called its native name. I forget what it is now. The battle they fought was at a place called Banana Ridge, or that's what it was called that's by them anyway, yeah. because it was yeah. a sort of sandbank, I think, shaped a bit like a banana. But it was it was fierce. The Hermann Goering parachute troops were on the other side. Yes. And, um, anyway. In their first action. So they did well. They did well. Wow. Goodness. How amazing. Oh, I hadn't appreciated he'd written a memoir. Well, it's, yeah, it's not, as I say, for publication, but it's very factual. And uh, it was quite useful for me when I was writing uh, the book you mentioned before, uh, Where My Heart Used to Beat, because mm. my father wrote in a very, very, practical and factual way and right. so there was a lot of recording of the kit what they were issued what they carried what they bought what they left behind what got nicked what got lost and all these little factual things which are quite useful to a novelist because obviously you're going to be making up the story making up the characters making up their responses and indeed what happens to all of them all the time but these details are very um very useful to you and you just you don't use them all you just use two or three about particular great coat or knapsack or whatever it is and that makes the reader you hope sort of believe in it is is that why um 
you writing fiction about the Second World War rather than writing history because you can say what they're thinking and feeling. Is that is that why you're not a historian? Because you, you I mean, you're talking about it like a historian would. You need I need to know the details. I need to know the what people are going through, mm. the whys and the wherefores of what's happening. Is why why fiction? Uh, basically, because I going back to sort of school days. I suppose the what first turned me on when I was uh, what I first began to do well at at school was English and responding to English novels poetry and so on. And the, the combination of subjects I was studying at school actually precluded history. So I didn't really do any history at school right. apart from, you know, maybe one year on the French Revolution or something. And, uh, you know, I know historians and, uh, you know, it's really hard work. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> you're not allowed to make anything up at all. It's just all down the mines and, you know, checking and then just incrementally adding a tiny bit to our knowledge of what happened or, or <laughs> seeing it from a slightly different perspective. And it's very, very hard work. And um, I'm, I'm too idle and I'm too, impa- I'm too impatient, I suppose, <laughs> is the answer. And right. because, you know, people have been kind enough to respond to my understanding of character rather than of historical fact. So, you know, I think I'm I think I, I think I've made the right choice, Al. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to say, I think you nailed the Anzio sequences. I thought they were incredibly affecting and and, and moving. And and you know, having been there before, I thought it seemed pretty spot on. To be honest, um, well, it was. I mean, I did do quite a lot of reading, and I had been there myself. Um, it's horrible, and, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was. A it's, truly, it's really one of the worst oh. parts of that and the South Calabrian coast on the yeah. on, on the on the insole of of the of the boot. Yeah, and, it was and very coast It's just it's just really grim. It's just really not a nice part of Italy at all. No, and um, this sort of malarial marsh, which was drained, and yes. uh, then they let the mosquitoes come back. And I mean, basically, they were fighting uh, in the beachhead in sort of little slit trenches, which were. Uh, not at all deep, afforded very little cover, and as you know, were full of water and excrement and so on. And I know this is a rather sort of contentious area, but my father was, uh, they, they were not, his his regiment, his, uh, his battalion, w- were not particularly pleased with the American leadership. I know that, you know, Mark Clark is a considered a figure of some you know, there are two sides to every story, but they they wanted to get moving and they felt they were left um, sitting there in the beachhead waiting for the order for far too long. And my father was ordered back to base after he'd been occupying a forward position for a long time. And he sent the runner back and said, I'm not moving. And the runner was then sent back and said, if you don't, ret- you know, don't come back and rest, uh, you know, you'll face the consequences. So very reluctantly, he went back to base. Uh, his company was then overrun, and either they were either all killed or taken prisoner. And he felt, I think, for the rest of his life that had he stayed, he he could have saved them. Um, meanwhile, it was or while, could have been killed. Or he could have been killed. And meanwhile, he, he, while he was back at base, he was uh, wounded in the head, and Blimey. I think he was actually talking to his commanding officer at the time. And they thought he died, and he was shipped out. Um, he what well, he was taken to the hospital, the beachhead hospital, which the Germans then bombed. So while he was lying with his head wound, he then got some shrapnel in the shoulder and he was, he was taken over across the bay to Sorrento and he was operated on. And his helmet had uh, done a very good job in protecting his head, although I think his skull was fractured. 
but his they they thought he would die, but he didn't. He rallied and uh, he awoke and sat up in his bed to see Mount Vesuvius erupting across the bay, <laughs> which was wow. the last time Mount My- Vesuvius erupted. Yeah, my God, his, March nineteen forty-four. Yeah, his older brother, who was in Italy at the same time, uh, was in Rome at the time and heard the news and hurried south. And when he arrived at the nursing home, he thought he expected that my father was dead and that he would go to the funeral. But he saw this familiar figure standing on the landing halfway up the stairs with a bandage around his head, smoking a cigarette. And he thought he'd seen a ghost. Uh, And he was very um, moved by this, as you can imagine. Anyway, so dad survived and he was back. He rejoined his battalion and took the salute going into Rome from Mark Clark. We have a, a photograph somewhere. And then eventually they, he was asked to rest. He was sent to an infantry training school. I think it was probably quite a good thing, though. He was, he was disappointed because he wanted to sort of push on north uh, with the rest of them. Um, but he had to go and do some, you know, map reading and instruction and, you know, whatever it is people do when they're not in the front line. Well, the bloke in charge of Anzio was um, was a chap called General Lucas, who was, um, and he he'd been a kind of staff officer. He'd been a sort of staff officer general. He'd been obs- he'd been like number two to, well, he basically been Patton's chum in right. in Sicily when Patton was in charge of the Seventh Army, and he'd basically been a kind of sort of observer, just to sort of get the lay of the land, kind of feel what it's all like, you know, prepare himself for kind of higher command. Then he takes over Sixth Corps, which is the Anglo is an American corps to which British divisions were added because Italy was unusual in that everything just mixed up because they were so short of troops. There was a, you know, America, American fifth army had lots of British divisions in it, even though it was American had French divisions in it, even though it was Mm. American. And Lucas was then given command of Anzio and he just didn't quite have enough to do the job. And, and the allies by that point, very sensibly, it got to the point where, you know, there's no point in taking massive risk because, you've got such a material advantage, you're going to win anyway. It's sort of better to kind of hold out. But the problem with Italy all the way through was they never quite, you know, the Allies by this stage of the war have a huge amount of material and they've got plenty for the Pacific and they've got plenty for Normandy and, you know, the build-up of, of, you know, preparations for for invading um, Normandy. But they haven't got much for Italy, which is the secondary theatre. They've got a lot, but they haven't got enough to do comfortably what they need to do. And Anzio is a classic case of that. You know, they're trying to kind of, unpick the deadlock which has arrived in southern Italy where the allies have come up against the kind of what's called the Gustav line and they're thinking well you know how can we unlock this well maybe we could do a flanking move around the back getting behind the Germans wouldn't that be brilliant and it would be brilliant but they needed double the amount of troops and landing craft that they they put into it and it's shipping that's the problem always and so Lucas on one hand was dealt a rather kind of bad hand um, because he was sort of damned if he did and damned if he didn't. He, he It was a situation that he just simply couldn't come out of well. But on top of that, he also got browbeaten by the whole experience. Uh, and and so he was relieved. And it was unquestionably the right decision to, to relieve him when he was relieved. But it still was quite tough shit on him, really. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much your average guy in the trench uh, worrying about his men no, or worrying about, about his life. I uh, very little in retrospect, no, uh, but no. I know that my father was a huge admirer of Alexander. Um, yes, uh, and he Quite spoke right his too. name with with great reverence. Um, it's all so bizarre talking about this, really. And um, 
I think, you know, that's what fascinates me about the war and the war before. As you were saying earlier on, Jim, you know, they they didn't want you to think of them as people who killed other people. And and why would you? And my my grandfather, my mother's father, was at the Battle of the Somme, wow. and he had joined the Artist Rifles. I never mm. quite understand exactly what they are. He subsequently got switched to a, some sort of trench <laughs> repair outfit, I think. But he was there in July 1916. But he sort of commuted back and forward from the front in some odd way. And he actually played rugby for England or an, uh, or an English side in 1917. So he was, you know, one minute you're digging the bodies out of the trenches and you're under sort of heavy shelling. And the next minute he was rallying the Richmond rugby team and himself playing in, I think, an unauthorized international against Scotland. Who knows? It's so odd. I never met him, unfortunately. This is my maternal grandfather because he was a very big, boozy, uh, macho, second-row forward rugby-playing guy. He was a journalist, a sports journalist. During the Second World War, when he was working, he'd, he'd survived the First World War with some gas, but not badly wounded. They, the Daily Telegraph ran out of war correspondence in 1944-45. And he said, well, look, you know, I'm still covering the golf and the, you know, rugby football here in London. Why don't I go? So he went off with the Americans um, in his early 50s. And he was reporting the, the crossing of the Rhine. And he was shot through the head by a German sniper. And uh, so... Having survived the trenches, the poor man was killed as a as a reporter no. in the Second World War. So I never met Goodness him. Goodness me! So, but you know, wow. I tell these stories about about these people. But you know, this is what I'm fascinated by is not so much that my father or my grandfather were you know extraordinary, but the fact is that they were so representative. Everyone's grandfather of my generation was in you know, on the Western Front. Well, not everyone, but most of them were. Most of the uh, fathers of my contemporaries were infantry or RAF or Royal Navy or whatever. You know, they just were. That was the fact of it. And it was the, the, it was the way that we had all normalized this and made it as if it hadn't happened somehow. It was so weird to me. And the if you read the fiction that was being published uh, when I was sort of a teenager, contemporary fiction by Iris Murdoch or Anthony Burgess or Kingsley Amis or so on, it was as if that war had never happened. Uh, it was right. never mentioned. None of the never characters mentioned. in these no. books ever seem to have been affected by it in any way at all. It's a great, great absence. And Isn't one it? The- I've never thought of that. That's mm. so interesting. You're so right. And I wonder why that is. Is it just because because at that point you just want to eradicate it? You just want to kind of. Wipe I think it partly what you want to memory. get on with with your life, but also partly because it's such a disgusting subject to write about. It's so revolting, you know, khaki and mud and blood. You know, pe- people don't want to read about that. Well, yeah, and the war memoirs that you get in the fifties and sixties don't have khaki and mud and blood in them. Really, they tend to be. It was a jolly good show. The chaps did awfully well. They tend to shy away from that's happening politically as well isn't it in the 60s particularly yeah there's a proper effort to to drop it and yes and move, move away from it because it's it must be because it's too terrible i think so it's, it's a combination of terrible and boring and the t- two two <laughs> things are not not attractive to publishers or the reading public but also i think the films of the second world war were are were an important way in which that war was remembered perhaps falsely as you say al but you know, films like The Cockle Shell Heroes, The Great Escape, The Dambusters, and so on, they were pretty entertaining films, actually. And at least they, they they did 
record, um, you know, 15 or 20 years later, something of what had happened. Unlike the First World War, where almost nothing uh, of what had happened was really accurately recorded. Well, the film industry was in its infancy, obviously. But the memoirs of the First World War came out, the, the famous ones we all know about, were all written by officers. They all came out about at least 10 years, 10, 15 years after the war. And they were all very restrained. And there was a real absence, I think, of a sort of, you know, ground up uh, account of, of, of what it felt like, either in fiction or in memoir, actually. Um, though, of course, there were massive amounts of documents, uh, individual letters, postcards, diaries, which, of course, the soldiers weren't allowed to keep, but which they did and their families kept, and which then I found huge numbers of these, as many others have done, in the Imperial War Museum, which is a fantastic collection. And that's where I got the sense of what life was like for infantrymen in the First World War when I was writing Birdsong. Yeah, of course. Not from reading books, but from reading these documents and the details they gave about the rations, the tea, how long you were there. I mean, you know, even you're sort of, you know, going to the lavatory or, or not. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, all that kind of thing, which people, it helps you to bring alive the experience for people. And again, it's when you're writing about these things, it's partly saying it's part you're partly trying to escape from our desire to normalize everything. But on the other hand, you're also trying to make people see that it was normal. This was what befell you if by the accident of your birth. This is what your life would have been. But also that these are people like you or I, you yeah. know, we would have, you know, with the same sort of thoughts and emotions and worries and anxieties and all the rest of it, but, but sort of magnified by the world. And what would you have, what were you thinking at, at 25 minutes past seven on right. July the 1st, 1916? Yeah, yeah. You know, you probably, some of your thoughts would have been, some of them would have been rather operatic about the girl you loved and home and you would have had noble thoughts, but you'd also have had some rather humorous or ignoble ones like, when am I, where can I have a crap? <laughs> Why yep. does the tea taste so horrible? Uh, yep. You know, and well, these little realistic details, I think, help, help bring it home to people. Yeah. It is interesting. We, you know, we've talked a little bit over the last couple of years about about how we remember the war. And it's very interesting. There was, um, I think it was a sort of report went out for, for you know, it's the 20th anniversary of the Battle of Britain in 1960. And, and you know, what are we going to do about it, if anything? And I think it was Tedder. He said, I don't wish to do anything. I mean, it's absolutely no interest to anybody anymore. That's the you know, Macmillan. The Macmillan cabinet had talk about it and say, "We, we you yeah. know, it's it's gone. It's over. Whatever. It's nothing, nothing to yeah. see here, which is incredible." Harold Macmillan, who, of course, you know, um, was wounded at the Battle of the Somme um, near, near uh, Delville Wood, um, was shot in the knee, leading his men forward. Managed to keep going and eventually got hit again in the thigh and was bleeding very badly and ended up in a shell hole where he managed to sort of, with the help of one of his men, managed to put a tourniquet around his thigh. And he kept himself going by alive by first having catnaps, but then secondly reading some ancient Greek text in Greek, which he happened to have about his person, <laughs> and playing doggo when, whenever he heard German voices. And eventually, 12 hours later, he was picked up. And, you know, he could never walk properly again after that. Um, uh, so, you know, he, he, he knew what it was about. And then, of course, was, was played a very active role in the Second World War, but by this time as a politician. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. I was on the uh, the government advisory committee for the commemoration of the First World War, which we, oh, was yes, a yes, very yes, large, unwieldy committee under the uh, auspices of the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And we sat, we sat for six years, I think, from 2013 to 2019. And one of the things we concluded at the end was that the planning for the um, remembrance of the Second World War needed to start now. Um, so I, th- I think there will be the centenary of the Second World War will be uh, very widely um, thought about and so on. And how you do it is very is very difficult. We felt that this the country as a whole did pretty well um, in the in the thing in the way that we we thought about and remembered the First World War. It was very much a question of reaching out and allowing getting a younger generation involved. And David Cameron's speech at the first event, which was the centenary of the Battle of Mons in 1914, was not very good, frankly. And uh, <laughs> it was very solemn and a lot to talk about sacrifice. 
but he clearly hadn't really done any homework. And he can speak very well, Cameron, if you think about the Bloody Sunday apology, for instance. And so we thought we all thought we will try and do better and try and make the speeches better and help the politicians, blah, blah, blah. And so I got very involved with the Somme centenary, which was fantastic, actually, though it, it unfortunately it fell um, about a week after Brexit. And President Hollande said he wasn't <laughs> going to turn up and two fingers to the British. And yeah. so it was a, it was very, very fraught. There were about there was the Ministry of Defence, the Department of Culture, Media's Foreign Office. There were also, of course, all the local French authorities, right down to the you know the parish council. So yeah, there was yeah. a strong sort of cloche male um, comedy aspect of it all. But in the end, uh, Hollande did turn up. He read brilliantly. A Cameron read very well, and I wrote a speech for Cameron to give. Um, though at the very last minute, it was reassigned to Prince William for some reason. So, How you know, weird. so even the palace was involved, but I, I don't know why I'm whittering on about all this <laughs> just to show how, uh, I think just to show how jolly hard we tried to get it right. And that with the second world war centenary will be better even than that. I hope. How should we approach the centenary of the second world war? Because after all the, that they're viewed, they're viewed differently in the public imagination. Aren't they? Yeah. Quite considerably. So, you know, that the second world war at least has sort of has bad guys in it and, a, yeah. and, a, and a just cause, uh, I suppose. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are historians who, who view the whole of Europe's uh, history as one long bloodletting. Yeah. And they, they very much dislike the First World War as being taken outside that long cyclical history of us yeah. murdering each other by the million all the time, always. Yeah. Um, and had given a special poignancy. And they refer to this mockingly as the poet's view of the war. Mm. But I, I personally think that's wrong because – I think it was different for the very simple reason that it involved uh, the common man, the butcher, the yeah. baker, the candlestick maker, which yeah. you know, hadn't previously been the case. Yeah. So it was the first to do that. No, the Second World War is very – how will people go about it? I, I, I suppose the most successful remembrance of it has been by the Jewish community worldwide who made it their duty straight away to publish the figures, publish the facts – saturate the world with knowledge of what happened to pursue the Nazis who were responsible and so on. Yes, but it was, wasn't until the Eichmann trial first that it, it, it kind of, because it was, it was dealt with immediately afterwards, wasn't it? And then, because I remember, I remember uh, my friend David Bernstein, his father, Sidney Bernstein, he was you know, head of Granada TV. He was, he was given the job of recording Belson. And so he got in there and was so horrified. He then turned into this, turned it into some major film. Mm. And by October 1945, the Ministry of Information said, we don't want you to finish that. Don't bother. Mm. So it was 95% complete. And there it stayed and remained until, I don't know, what am I thinking? Probably 2015, I should think. Um, when the Imperial War Museum found all the, the, you know, they discovered that they still had all the reels and everything, yeah. and it was all completely finished. And they and and it, it was paid to finish it off, and and they produced this, you know, 80 minute film about it, uh, which also included footage of other other death camps and concentration camps being relieved. But it was swept under the carpet in 1945. I mean, completely. I mean, mm. initially, let's go and shame the Germans. And, and then there was this complete sea change. And then until the Eichmann trial, it was, it was very much under the radar, really, despite all the, the, the Nuremberg trials and the kind of, you know, crimes against humanity coming into the, into the 
parlance and everything. Yeah, but that's not nothing. Well, I know that's not nothing, but it wasn't to the, it, you know, there were these bursts of, of, of commemorating the Holocaust. And, and then, of course, there was the Spielberg Schindler's List, which was the other big, big move forward. Yeah. I mean, each country, I mean, my dad was actually in Palestine when the King David Hotel was blown up right. by um, uh, oh Israeli terrorists. So, um, yeah, it was very, very complicated, and especially so in France. Um, oh, yeah. Which took, I think, I think I'm right in saying 50 years to acknowledge its own part in deporting about 75,000 uh, Jewish people, some of French nationality, some of other European nationalities, to Auschwitz. And um, they, they didn't want to know, they didn't want to tell anything about this because uh, there would have been a civil war in France. Uh, because which was absolutely split down the middle, those who'd been with Vichy, those who'd been against it, with the Free French, as we know. And de Gaulle sold them the story that France had liberated itself by force of arms, and they had always hated the Nazis, they'd always resented the whole thing, which was obviously not at all the case. Uh, and it took them 50 years to put up a small, rather grudging memorial on the left bank of the uh, Seine in Paris, uh, commemorating some as a it's a sort of bronze of a sort of refugee family huddled together with their suitcases about to be booted off to Poland. Did, I mean, did you ever see that series, The Sorrow and the Pity? Yeah. I mean, that was, I think that, that was made in something like 1969. And I think it was banned until 1984 or something like yeah. that, or 1990. Or, I mean, some incredible time later. When I, when I was writing Charlotte Grey um, in the um, middle 90s, there was not much in, in French to go on. I mean, the the key book then was still, for the overall picture, was still Robert Paxton, an American who'd written a book called right. Vichy France, uh, published in the early 70s. And his bibliography, and he was a proper academic at, I think, Princeton, if I remember rightly, his bibliography is non-existent. He says, there are no books. That was writing... That's amazing. That was writing 30 years afterwards. Um, and... Uh, I remember uh, actually at Drancy, the camp in uh, the outskirts of northern Paris, yeah. uh, which was a half-built housing block, sort of low-rise municipal housing. They belatedly put a cattle truck and a few and about ten yards of rail in with a small thing, saying, "Lest we forget." Again, that was done in the nineties, so nearly fifty years afterwards. And I remember standing there once trying to get a feeling of what this block had been like at the time. And a woman came up to me, a French woman in her 70s, and said, what are you doing? And I explained to her what I was doing. And she said, well, it's hardly changed at all. It still looks half finished. It was a half finished accommodation block when I was here. And I said, why were you here? And she said, because I'm Jewish. And she rolled up her sleeve. No. And oh, she showed God. me the uh, tattoo on her arm, the, her number. Goodness me. And... Uh, I said, but, well, obviously she had survived. And she, she was 18 years old when she went. So she was old enough to work and young enough to be able to, to, to come back to that word we've used a bit, sort of normalize things. And right. she told me, and a lot of other people have told me, that actually 18 is, is quite a good age to be. Because if you've come from a reasonably stable, ordinary background, you kind of trust that the world is going to be okay and that whatever happens is sort of all right, really. And you can keep on normalizing what happens to you. Whereas if you're young, you're not strong enough. If you're 35, you know that this is completely wrong and it's, it's utterly traumatic and you, you sort of give up or else go mad or whatever. But I think she was there for about 18 months, she said, Auschwitz, and came out very 
you know, in a bad way, obviously, but had put it behind. Had survived. Her. Yeah. God. I mean, did that, and that must have had quite an effect on you, didn't it? I mean, I, I think it would have had quite an effect on me, meeting someone like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose a terrible thing is that as a, as a novelist, you're always looking for the telling detail, and <laughs> yes. uh, uh, but you're also looking for t- to feel authentic in some way. And, right. you know, what right have I got to describe what happened to small children, as I do in Charlotte Gray, who arrive yeah. in Auschwitz and the they're processed on the ramp and they go left or right. Well, these little boys, obviously, I'm afraid, go the wrong way. Um, you know, what right have I? I wasn't there. You know, I'm not Jewish. I was not one of the – don't belong to the, any of the groups that were murdered in this way. Uh, and you, you, want to, you want not only to have the detail of the cherry tree outside the block where the showers were, but you also want to feel that you've been allowed to do it by almost by physically touching someone who was there. Uh, and so you don't feel inauthentic or presumptuous. And a similar thing with Birdsong, when I first went to the Western Front with, in the late 80s or early 90s, I forget, with, with men who'd been there. And, you know, we stood where they had stood, and one of them held my hand and talked me through exactly what the day had been like. So this, this is a sort of process of m- trying to make yourself feel less of an imposter and, and actually entitled to try to understand and do what you're doing. Do you think you'll ever re- return to the Second World War in fiction? Um, well, I am contracted to write uh, another novel in the uh, so-called Austrian trilogy, which began with Human Traces oh, and then yes. Snow Country. And so... I've gone from about 1890 through to about 1934, and Hitler has been mentioned once. But I don't really want to write a story um, with Nazis and with the sort of full action of the Second World War because I feel that others better equipped than I've done that. But uh, there's something about sort of rebuilding Eastern Europe after the Second World War, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. and. There's a fascinating place in West Berlin. You, I can't remember its name now. It's that it's that mountain built with rubble from the bombed yes. remains, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, on which they then put the CIA listening station. That's and there's right. some, some terrible. I, I, I filmed there. Have you? It's yeah. an amazing yeah. place, isn't it? But it's yeah. like you know, you. It's all. It's so clunky. A symbol of human idiocy <laughs> that you take the rubble of one war, build a mountain and put a listening station on so you can intercept the Russians who, who after all, have been, you know, won the war for them only about 10 minutes before. It's absolutely, but I mean, it's so clunky as a symbol that I'm wondering if it isn't too clunky, but anyway. I, I, <laughs> there's, also the, there's also the Humboldt flak tower, which is, which is part buried by rubble. And part not, because what they did was, I think it was, it was in the, if I'm right, this one was in the French sector. I may be wrong about that, but, but anyway, they, they, they blew it up and it was just so thick, this concrete, that even with kind of vast amounts of explosives, they, they couldn't really blow it up. They could sort of just sort of, it, it sort of slightly tilted and bits of it slightly collapsed in on itself, but, but you can still get inside it. And, you know, you've got sort of ball bars and, and bits of flaking concrete and, and, and so on. And it all looks incredibly precarious. And there's no way the British Health and Safety Executive would let you anywhere near it. But, mm. but in Germany, you can get inside it. And, and it sort of, it emerges. So, so there's a sort of quarter of it that sort of sticks out. And the rest of it is this now, is now a rubble hill. 
with right. grass on it and trees and you know all the rest of it. And the whole thing is just so weird and bizarre because it's it's like a lot of the. I mean, it's it's, it's like going to the Berghof, for example. You know, Hitler's house. Yeah. They haven't really. They've destroyed it. But you can still go there and pick up bricks and bits of yeah. bits of the camo net that was over it in 1945, and you can still find bits of concrete and you know well, there's again, lots of relics of it and the retaining wall and all this sort of stuff. So they've got they've got rid of it, but they haven't really got rid of it. It's the same with the flak towers. I mean, you can't, why you would you leave go, it like that? You can't go to his bunker in Berlin, can you? No, no, it's concreted in. That is you can go to where it is. There's a sort of dog shit car park there. Yeah, yeah. But again, some of the symbolism is is almost sort of you know the, the Berghof. That's almost a description of Germany and its trace memory of the war, isn't it? That you can yeah, still completely. Pick, you completely. can still pick up bricks that, you know, and the rubble and the concrete. I've, I've got one literally just behind me. Because <laughs> they've been through so many phases of trying to accommodate, you know, an immediate denial afterwards or the sort of year zero thing afterwards. Then two Germanys, because it's one of the things we've spoken to a lot of Germans about, depending on which side of the wall they're from, what their attitude to the Second World War was. Because we, we spoke to a historian in Dresden, you know, who grew up in communist Eastern Germany, and his father had lots of books, loads and loads of Second World War fiction about the heroic antics of the of the Red Army. Yeah, what fantastic right. people they were. And he grew yeah. up on he grew up on that tradition. They'd been liberated from fascism by by communists, you yeah. know. Yeah. And then of course the wall falls and. He had to sort of start again in his yeah. mindset. Yeah, so it, yeah, we thought about the Second World War. It's amazing. So, Al, you're asking me how how we should remember or will will we remember the Second World War? It's going to be a very complicated business, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Absolutely. Why don't we yeah. begin by asking people in the Baltic states how they remember it? <laughs> yeah, yes, or in, or in <laughs> Kaliningrad. Yeah, but I think we will tell our own story, and actually. I think that's fine um, because because it is so fragmented, because everyone's story is so entirely different. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't tell retell our own story, which is very particular and something that we we do feel proud of. And I, th- in my view, correctly so. Yeah. Well, yeah. amen to that. I certainly agree with that. Well, Sebastian, thank you. That's been yes, thank done. you so much. That, that's a really. I, it's exactly what I knew it would be, which was just a really interesting, wide ranging, and very chat. So good. <laughs> thank you very much. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> but do spike it if you want to. <laughs> never spike it. Uh, there's never no spiking going to happen. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we've been talking, Sebastian. We'll see you all soon. Have a very merry Christmas. Bye bye. Cheerio. Bye. bye.